Hello, friends, and welcome to Theology in the Raw. I am here with my, uh, I, want, I almost said good friend. We've never met, um, but somebody I've admired from afar. And uh, fr from, what, from what he has told me, it, it's mutual. Um, but I am here with John Tyson. John Tyson is a church planter, pastor, and I, I'm going to say a pastoral theologian. And I really mean that. I mean, uh, there, there's some people that are like theologians, but they're not quite pastoral. There's some people that are pastoral, but man, their theology is just like, eh. Um, John Tyson's a real deal, and I'm going to let him describe himself because he, he may deny some of that, but I'm, I'm going to stick with it. John, thanks so much for being on Theology in the Raw. Well, thanks so much, mate. I, I'm a big fan of this, uh, this show. I recommend it to a lot of people. When you have the courage to take on John Piper on a one or two light little Calling, calling me a pastoral theologian is a real honor. I think I would describe myself like that. I certainly aspire to be like that, you know, to wed deep, thoughtful understanding and, you know, culture philosophy. Um, real quick, we are having some video difficulties and uh, neither of us have the best internet. I'm plugged in straight into the Wi-Fi, so there's nothing I can do about it. My John is in a is in a his closet in an apartment in New York City. So apparently the the Wi-Fi out there isn't too great. We're we're just gonna keep going with it, and uh, we'll see if this works out on the video portion. This is both a video uh, that we upload to YouTube and also um, a podcast. So worst case scenario, we'll cancel the video and just keep going with the audio. But um, let let's let's just get. I, I want you to just uh, describe your journey. Who are you? And specifically, like I mean, I I I just your ecclesiology or what you've done with the church and I'll say churches and church planning in New York city is really, um, really remarkable. I mean, I've often said that my ecclesiology is probably the closest to what you have done in, uh, New York city, even though I've never even said that to you. I don't know if you even know that, but I, from a distance, I'm like, golly, I don't know too much about it, but from what I can see, it's just like, I, I think you're doing something really remarkable here. So, but let, let's back up. You, you got a bit of an accent, John, where did you, uh, where did you grow up and what brought you to America? Yeah. So I grew up in Australia and, uh, I became and I turned 17 in a Pentecostal youth revival in the Assemblies of God. Hey, John, John, that your audio is just yes. really cutting out. You know what I'm going to do? Let's go ahead and just, I'm going to. Okay, let me just try one other thing. I'm so sorry. Man. No worries. Let me just try this. Is that, how's that? Oh, yeah. We'll just keep going with it. Yeah, just keep, keep going. Yeah, okay. And if it happens again uh, for more than like five seconds, we'll just stop the, the video and just go with the audio. So you grew up in a Pentecostal background in, in Australia? Yeah, and um, so it, it was all about the move of God that was coming to Australia. And it was all about now, it was about revival, it was about the inbreaking presence. And then somebody actually gave me, uh, do you, you remember what cassette tapes, you're probably old oh, enough, yeah. but <laughs> they sent me a John MacArthur expository teaching through the book of Philippians. Oh, nice. And I just remember listening to it just saying, what is this? What, what is the word of God? And I ended up going and visiting a church that, uh, that uh, was sort of founded on expository preaching. And I sat on the front row weeping. And I'll never forget the sermon was about why Jesus is better than Melchizedek. And I didn't know who Melchizedek was, but I just knew that Jesus was better than him. And I, and I actually don't know if they knew what to do with me because I had so much passion for God. And every sermon I heard, I was like, that's the best talk I've ever heard. And I just don't think that we, they sort of took 
good for granted, you know. So that, that sort of shaped my journey. And I have spent a lot of time trying to integrate the power of the Holy Spirit with very, very sound theology. So the phrase I would use is theology that can't be dismissed, power that can't be denied. Yeah. And I think that's biblical Christianity. Well, and you, so I've been on a, yeah. yeah. Well, I've noticed that in your preaching. I mean, you're, you're, you preach hour long plus sermons sometimes as a couple of weeks ago, an hour and 27 minutes or whatever that was. Um, and, and, and you go so Personal deep. Personal record. You, yeah. I mean, you, you're, you're, you can tell in your sermons, you're widely read. You study a ton. I might, I mean, maybe we can ask, maybe I can't ask you how, how many hours of research you put in each sermon, but, but then you also have this very profound, I mean, unashamed, like charismatic thread through the entire thing, which I, I don't want to be stereotypical, but, but my, my, even my charismatic friends who are more on the intellectual side say, yeah, my tradition isn't known for, you know, doing deep biblical theology or research. And I, I think, I don't want to say every charismatic's like that at all. I mean, I would say yeah, I, sure. I'm mildly charismatic. So, um, but you, you seem to blend the best of both the worlds, the kind of MacArthur expositional, whatever, but then also the, the, you haven't left, you haven't left behind your Pentecostal, roots either. Is that correct? Yeah, totally. So I I had one of my mentors say to me, um, in the New Testament, so take someone like Paul, who had rich, rich rabbinical training, deep, deep sense of the the, the story of God, the theology of the people of God, then his teaching on the nature of the church, the revelation God gives him about Jesus, the things he includes in the epistles, then his understanding of culture and his ability just to move in broadly intellectual circles. He said to me, this is what biblical Christianity is. So the apostle Paul can go in Acts 17 and debate the leading thinkers of his day yeah. and then walk into a church service and see that someone has faith to be healed and heal them. And he said, this is just like a seamless integration of following Jesus. And that, that phrase, like seamless integration, huh. has always sort of stuck at my heart. And um, so I've, I've tried to not not pick and choose, but really yeah. integrate the best of the traditions that I've been exposed to and, and do something thoughtful and meaningful. That's with the way them, to so. do it. That's the way to do it. You ended yeah. up in, in New York City. Uh, what, have you been there 13 years? Is that right? 13 years, man. Home sweet home. And you uh, were, I could say, discipled or mentored by Tim Keller before Tim Keller was Tim Keller, right? <laughs> <Is> that, when, <laughs> yeah, when that's be- <laughs> true. I don't think you get discipled by Tim Keller. I think you get mentored by Tim okay. Keller. Okay. So oh. <laughs> he did, a, yeah. Nice. He did a thing called um, the Fellows Program, and so I had the privilege of being one of the guys that went through the first version of that. I hadn't written any books yet, and um, but that just shaped me profoundly. I remember hearing a talk he gave called "The Gospel and Yourself," and it was like he he uses the phrase "a God quake moving through the human soul," and I encountered that under his teaching. Wow! And I was just like, "What is this?" And it, 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 that really, really impacted me. So, you know, I don't, I, I wouldn't say I love as much um, what the gospel centered movement has become, because I think in many ways, the overemphasis on idolatry and the lack of empowerment of the Holy Spirit and emphasis on, on new covenant realities, new nature sometimes gets distorted. But certainly those early days yeah. really, really impacted. What do you mean by gospel? What do you mean by gospel-centered movement? I think I know what you mean, but I would love for you to unpack that a little bit. What is that you talking about like, if I can say gospel coalition or or something more specific or something different? Or what's the uh, well, I mean, th- that's the problem with language. Nobody in the gospel-centered movement can identify what they believe the gospel to be, just like no charismatic can under- explain okay. what they mean by charismatic. You know, so I-, I think I mean um, 
a research. Uh, I, I, I'm not sure I can articulate it because I don't think they've perhaps articulated it. Um, but here's what it feels like in terms of discipleship. Your heart is an idol factory from Calvin. And all week long, you wrestle with idols and you come back to church to hear the announcement of the cross spoken over okay. you and to receive the, the, the reinstatement of right relationship with God. And you go back into an idolatrous world with, without a, with, a, with, a, with a heart that is so prone to idolatry. And then you come back to the cross and hear the gospel announced over you. And then all week long again, you struggle with the idols of our culture. Okay, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. it's what I call a Satanless gospel. So if you don't have, if you don't have Satan in your theology, your heart becomes Satan and the only emphasis is on the wickedness of your heart. And so the gospel then is primarily about your idolatrous heart coming back to hear the announcement of the cross. And my theology is on, on the other side of the cross, it's about walking in the spirit. And of course there's repentance, but it's more about empowerment, living in the spirit, walking in the spirit, the fruit of the spirit. And you go back to the cross rather than defaulting to idolatry and coming to the cross you walk in the yeah. spirit and then come back to the cross. So be more, it sort of feels like having discipleship. Would it be general again? Not not to get stereotypical or project categories on it, but like the, a neo reformed, like the neo reformed kind of movement, the the Mark Driscoll disciples maybe, and and I mean because I don't want to even name names. So I'm not trying to limit it yeah, to no, that. So, but that that would be the general flavor of what you're saying is good and awesome and beautiful, but maybe lacks a little bit more emphasis on the spirit. Um, yeah, I think that would be true. Um, the the neo reform movement is very very wide, right? Um, so there's a lot of those guys who I think I think are wonderful, wonderful people, but it is this like uh, a sort of like a, a joyless soberness that um, is is so suspicious and aware of sin, and it just seems less aware of what we have available in Jesus and the power of the Spirit, walk in the Spirit, that sort of a thing. So. It's, it's maybe perhaps a contrast on that, but now I'm leaking charismatic theology. <laughs> All right, let's fast forward a little bit. You planted, uh, you just told me before, was it, was it 10 churches in 11 years or 11 churches in 10 years? But it was more like a network of communities, right? Yes, I, I, was, at, yeah, I was involved. So I, I moved to New York. I planted a church called Trinity Grace Church, and that multiplied to 11 locations. So it was 11 different congregations. It was a multi-congregational model. So we call them parishes, um, but we invented the parish borders, you know, like the, the, okay. the, the church didn't define them. We invented them based on missiology. And really? we would basically say there's a, there's a contextual missiology where at some point you bump into a, almost like an invisible cultural wall that sort of defines your ability to effectively minister in the same way to this group of people here. Uh -huh. so it's very place oriented. Huh. So we, yeah, we planted a bunch of those. And then a year ago, um, they, to use Presbyterian language, particularized into uh, local churches. And so they, they already had their own pastors, their own leadership teams, their own budgets. So they particularized. I took two of those congregations, one that I had planted, one that I had sort of stepped back in to bring some health and recovery to, and just reconstituted those under a name. And that name is Church of the City. So, so now has your ecclesiology shifted or is it just you've, you've moved into a, a new stage of your kind of role in that movement? Uh, no, I don't, I don't think my ecclesiology has shifted. I mean, I'm more committed to um, incarnational place-based ministry than I've ever been. I mean, I, I live in a building with three other families. 
with sort of light monastic rhythms. Like we pray, pray and worship together every morning. Wow. We each have a rule of life that we sort of tend to and, and talk about. So I'm, I'm, I mean, honestly, there's some days I don't leave my street. That's how committed I am to like location-based ministry. Wow. That's, that's not, that's not hyperbole. There's some days I don't leave my street. So. I do that too, but that's out of laziness. I just don't like to see. <laughs> <laughs> no, so I, I, one thing that did shape my, one thing that did shape my understanding of place though, is so I, I was in many ways. So I'm 41 right now. I was in many ways like the typical church planter of my generation. Okay. I planted when I was 28. I was a mega church youth pastor, which a lot of like well-known um, church planters yeah. come from. And I didn't want to redo a suburban mega church. There was no, I'm not judging them or whatever. It was just like, I sensed the world changing. So I wanted to go to a city. I wanted to do something urban, but I was basically the, the absolute best of the horse and buggy at about the same time that Henry T had just figured out uh, the production belt for his car. <laughs> and so when I, when I was 28, the, the people who basically run New York now were 13 back then. So I didn't care what a 13 year old thought of my church. And it was right when social media was coming along. So I planted before the iPhone, before Twitter, before any sort of social media. And I planted with one philosophy that was very effective back then. And, but just watching, watching people, I mean, I have a son who's about to turn 18 next month, I have a 15 year old daughter, watching them interact with the world, even though they love the place they live, made me say, my strategy for discipleship has to shift and it can't purely be location-based. It's got to be online digital connection uh, okay. with uh, incarnational community. So some of my location legalism has melted away because okay. I've just watched the nature of the city change. I, I've thought about that. Cause I, 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 the location stuff. I mean, I, it's like, of course, of course, like that makes so much sense to me. The only thing I would, so, so I read a book a while back called bowling alone. Are you familiar with this book? I, yes, Robert Putnam, I am, yeah. And it got me to think, and I, I didn't do a lot of deep thinking, but I was like, man, I, I, it seems like I don't want to give in to culture, but our culture is not location-based any longer for whatever reason. And I think that's, as Putnam showed, it's to the detriment, really, of, of community and, and uh, even our just well-being. Um, but at the same time, I feel like I, I've pulled back a little bit from, man, go to a local church. Don't pass over four churches to go to that one down there. Yeah, I'm like, well, yeah, sure. the world, the fact, the fact is we work 15 miles over here. We go to the market yes. 20 miles over here. Our friends are a half hour away. Like we just are in a, in a non-location based culture, but in, in this, I think in your context or even an urban context where people do go to the market they go to work they live sometimes they don't even own cars like downtown boise is like that a lot of people don't even own cars yes. because everything is there then yeah. it, i think that absolutely makes sense but to say that that must be every kind of model wherever you are i don't think in it i think we need to flex with the nature of the of the community where you're where you're ministering in yeah missional ideology is the death of discipleship <laughs> I mean, when, when you were trying to superimpose right. this thing, I mean, it just becomes a legalism and it just does, it doesn't produce good fruit. The challenge with cities as well, though, is that the cities themselves are changing so quickly. Yeah. You know, I, I have a friend who's, a, who's an African-American who's deeply committed to ministering to the poor. And, and um, you know, he's facing a real challenge right now because when he bought his house, it was, you know, kind of in the hood, to use his term. And 10 years later, the neighbor's gentrified, gentrified and he's surrounded by a bunch of white folks and his house is like doubled in value. 
and he's buying so six dollar coffees at the local uh... yeah. <laughs> so now his heart is honestly kind of torn like hmm. if i'm really committed to a certain kind of place but now the place is totally shifted right. and it doesn't match the demographic i care about do i sell my house and move somewhere else so there's a lot of those those conversations are happening the city's change as people are transient yeah. it's not as clear cut and simple as it was so i, I do prefer a more I, I prefer robust missiology and discipleship with a loose with 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 a looser um framing around how you yeah. apply that could you, before it was pretty rigid can you say that line again that's so tweetable uh, ideological missiology is a death or what was that what was that line i can't oh come man, on was... you had are you saying that was on the fly you said that that was yes <laughs> I don't remember what I just said. Missiological idealism is the death of discipleship or what? If you're watching this, just rewind and everybody, if you're watching this, retweet that. That was brilliant. Yeah. Ideology is bad news in all of its forms. Yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm not a fan. Well, the, and the older I get, the more I realize how my, flexible my ecclesiology is. I do have my preference or whatever things that I think are generally better than others, but I don't know. I'm just so not an ecclesiology Nazi anymore. And the, the beautiful thing about the New Testament is I think it, if I can, I, I think I'm right here. The, the Old Testament had a very monolithic, I'm going to use ecclesiology. It's, it's, yeah. it's centered on the temple. It's here's the, yes. the days you come worship. Here's the rituals. Here's whatever. It seems like the New Testament vision is, is going against monoethnicity to multi-ethnicity and to go rather than mono location, I don't know if that's a word to multi location. It needs to resist ecclesiology, ecclesiological sort of um, idealism. It needs to be flexible because it's going into outer yeah. reaches of the world. It's going into different cultures and different spaces. So it's the new Testament ecclesiology seems to be designed to have a, a, a little bit of a flexibility to it. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, even, even the shift from, um, the temple worship or to synagogue post temple worship sure yeah that's a gathering place and then church shifting to the home right i mean you want to talk about a shift right there in terms of what people experienced and how that impacted you know participation and leadership and that sort of thing so i think the church is at its best when it's it's flexible and able to respond yeah. to the spirit you know? yeah all right let's fast forward to like last couple of weeks you you yeah. Um, I want you to retell the story as I heard it. Cause I've listened to a few, years, a few of your sermons. You sent an email or an email. I don't know. You asked your church, what do you, what are some key things that you want me to teach on? And it, yeah, go ahead and take it from here. Well, how, how did you go about getting this series going? Uh, yes. Yeah, so we're doing a series right now called controversial Jesus. And I basically had, um, something that I'd known for probably 20 years, but I sort of resisted it because the way I had seen it done was, sort of like um, uh, mega church gimmick series, like hot topics, you know, yeah, with, yeah. A, with a roll in bumper vid and then sort of like a 30 minute underdeveloped explanation that no real thinker would agree with. Right, right. And I was just so, I, but I knew that there was something to that concept, the importance of asking the question, what are your people wrestling with? It's hindering their discipleship or causing concern. And how do you talk about it? So I just never did that from the pulpit. I would always like preach through books of the Bible or do series. And if it came up, I'd address it. But I just sort of got to this moment where I felt like two things were required. Number one was pastoral courage, which was there's now because of political correctness, things you're not allowed to say. Right. And I thought I found myself in sermons censoring myself out of just not, I mean, just, it would just subconsciously pop up 
don't say that, don't frame it that way or whatever. And I was like, that, that is, I kind of literally muting the word of God out of fear oh, wow. of what the culture will think of me. And then secondly, I just were meeting with, so I was having the same coffees again and again and again over these topics. Mm. I was like, it's actually not even a good use of my time. I mean, I'm just like, I need to, you know, I need to address this from the pulpit. So I just basically sent an email out that said, what do you wish a pastor would preach on, but you've never heard a sermon on? Like, what questions do you have about God, life, faith, culture, discipleship, etc.? And then, so I took all of those and then just basically tried to categorize them and respond to them. And they basically went like this, sex, 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 politics. <laughs> or even more explicitly, it's like um, straight sex, gay sex, trans sex, intersex. How can you support Donald Trump? That was like basically what all of the, there's a few other like uh, other ones thrown in. No rapture. Uh, Nobody wanted to know when the rapture is happening. People, no, done those, that's another generation. <laughs> wow. Yeah, so, so, you know, so that's, that's, that's led me to try and um, to, to, so that they honestly, I'm not making this up. They sort of fell into the categories of sex, money and power. Okay, sure. Which is, it's not really a surprise. You know, like how does it, what about Jesus and gun violence? Someone, uh, I don't know if you've heard of this book, it's called Fight. Anyway, phenomenal <laughs> book on Jesus and, and violence, which I really recommend. <laughs> nice. That you obviously wrote. And uh, so there was, but those topics kept coming up. And so we've categorized them in, in sex, money, and power. We're in power right now. Oh, you so are. So tell me which did. ones you've preached on sex. I've listened to two, maybe three of them. Um, I did one on singleness. Okay. Um, uh, I did one on a concept called sexual formation, which is something Christians never ask, which is who am I becoming mm. by, by what I'm doing with my sexuality? Oh, wow. So instead of just counting it as, is this sinful or should I not do it? I'm asking by my sexual practice, where, what am I doing with my body, my mind, my heart, and my soul? And am I loving God and neighbor more through it? So that was on... Um, Pornography, masturbation, cohabitation. Okay. So that one was fun. What did you read in preparation for that? Who have you found helpful? Uh, what did I read? I, so that's the, that's the most prep I've ever put into a talk. Really? So I did 40, 40 hours on that oh, wow. preparation. And um, that was exhausting. So I did, I read everything. I yeah. probably read 20 books on that. Oh my gosh. Wow. Yeah. God. I mean, just, and you end up, you might read a whole book. And the yield will be two concepts and oh, half yeah. a quote or something like, like the yield is so low. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I, part of my, I have the joy really of, of, and a lot of people are jealous of this, so I don't dangle it in front of you, but part of my job is to read a few hours a day. So I, I read a lot of books. What I found, what I found is um, uh, a lot of times I'm reading a book just to see if there's anything there that's of, value. And sometimes I'll read an entire book and say, yeah, there's nothing there that's significant. I will never go back to that book again. But now I know that this book who might be well-known, maybe the author's well-known, maybe the topic has been tossed around. I'm like, yeah, there's nothing there that's really that great. And it, I could see it as a waste of time, but it's for every two or three books I read, I'm like, ah, it's not that great. There'll be a book I'll read where it's like, oh my gosh, that chapter on this was unbelievable. I never would have known that if I hadn't actually read the book. Now, so, you know, it's so It's so interesting you say that because when I first moved to New York, um, I, I lived, the only person I knew in the city when I moved here was um, one of the elders at Redeemer. And I, had, I hadn't actually heard really any Tim Keller teaching or anything then, but I, I had this friend. And so he said to me, hey, soon you're going to hear about Tim Keller. And you're going to realize that he is the best, least known preacher in America. Huh. And 
I, he said, I've seen this happen again and again. Pastors come to New York and they try and beat Tim Keller. And he goes, I want to give you one piece of advice from knowing Tim well. And he said this, don't read what Tim reads or quote what Tim quotes. He's like, read, uh, read around who Tim quotes and read around what Tim reads. So he said, for example, yeah. it's exactly what you said. He said, he might use one quote, but he read six books on that topic. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And Tim Keller is Tim Keller versus other persters because he has, like a DJ, his crate is so full of understanding on that topic right. that he never used in that sermon. That the compound effect of that of 20, 30 years is you, you literally just think circles around everybody else on the issue because you've read so widely around it. And that stuck at me. So I, I agree with you. Even yeah. though I read all of these books, I never know how in a Q&A or in a pastoral right. situation, you're like, actually, thank you for mentioning that. I did read this, this book on this and there's something very, very helpful for you in this. Right. So right. there's real value for that. that I, 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 have, I have the tension is that I, I, w I wish I could get the job where you read. <laughs> I, I, I ache for that act six leave me alone to study the word <laughs> yeah but, it's i mean there's i go through seasons where i'll go two or three weeks a month right where i'm not reading anything i'm just preparing it's all output yes. it's refining yeah, yeah. this it's 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 email it's speaking and stuff so that that's not definitely not a 52 week thing but yeah, yeah, my yeah. The, the rhythm that i try to create is I try to do like two hours every every morning of just not even note taking. I'll take notes in my yeah. book, but just yeah. just read through as many books. I mean, because I'm a lot of people do look for me for like the answer on all things related to sexuality and gender. Well, yeah. heck, I mean that's a massive topic. Like, yes. so I, I but I do take the, I don't um, take that responsibility lightly. So I, I feel almost this this pressure really, but a joyful pressure of being like, I need yeah. to become an expert in, in everything related to this topic, which is impossible, but I need to do, do the best I can. I, I want to get back to, well, for I, I did just another comment and maybe even a encouragement or even challenge to other people like that. That is so lost in our day and age when there's so much pragmatism in church planning and ministry, there's pressure to grow the church, to keep the people that you grew up with, income, pay the bills. The idea that a pastor would sit down and read, you know, that where 90% of his study doesn't even go into the message, a pragmatist is going to say, well, cut all that out and just do the 10, you know, focus on the 10% that actually gets in there. And you're like, well, no, like part of your job as a pastor is to yeah. have a lot more knowledge than actually comes out. That's lost. That that's the my generation, our generation, like in eighties and nineties in seminary, like they pounded that into us. I don't see that as much anymore. The the the, the sermon prep or even just the the pastoral theologian kind of aspect of ministry just seems to be pretty rare. Would, would you agree with that? I mean, you're you're in a more intellectual environment, so maybe not. But no, I think that's very very true, and I think there's a real sadness there because life is getting, uh, you know, it, life is too hard for bad theology. That is true. I mean, people are just wrestling with such complexities yeah. that if you don't have robust answers for it, yes, yes, it's it's over. That, and yeah. I think one of the gifts I, I saw uh, I saw a guy tweet this. I think it was a guy named Duke Quan. Oh yeah, and I know Duke. He, yeah, he's awesome. Yeah, so he tweeted something that I thought was very interesting. He said, "Pastors, people don't know how to read the Bible anymore, and it is your job to preach hard things and show them how you arrived at your conclusions." Yes, yes absolutely. So yeah. that they can trust yes the word of god and i was like no, that's exactly it. i actually really try very hard to do that yes which is to show people not just here's what the passage says but here's how to find out 
how do we even get to the point where you know what it says? So that unfortunately makes for longer sermons. Though I mean, I could, I could, I could tighten them up, but on these, on these tough issues, I don't want to do four weeks on it. It'll be like a 90 week series on yeah, yeah. the controversial Jesus. Yeah. You gotta, you gotta cap it somewhere. So your next two sermons in the sex part of the series that you're doing, one was on same sex relationships. Another one yes. was on uh, transgender identities experiences. So I, I just yes. want to say up front, man, your sermon on same-sex relationships is I, I, and I'm not a wide connoisseur. I don't go online, listen to tons of sermons, but I, it's the you're best. giving the sermons, not listening to the sermons. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, I, I think it's the best sermon I've I've heard on the topic. It's yeah. it was so incredible, and, and then actually I listened to the transgender one first, which that's even more complicated and touchy. Oh, and the gosh. you talk about dancing around political correctness and getting possible death threats if you say the wrong word like that that's an intent you handle both of those so incredible so i just want to tell my audience i don't even care what side of this debate you're on go listen to those two sermons the same sex relationships one and and the transgender one they were incredible i would love to from inside perspective how how, what was your prep like how did you handle that what's been the response like because i'm just blown away by them oh man that's really kind of you i mean like i lean heavily on your material so (laughs) thank you Oh man, the number one thing I was worried about, the number one thing that I'm so moved by is um, Jesus' compassion for the people. Yeah. I'm just, I'm just so moved by it. And when I, you know, the first sermon I actually gave in the series was like controversial compassion. And I contrast the story where Jesus goes to the Pharisee's house and the sinful woman comes in oh, and yeah. is like washing his feet and anointing him. And then Jesus tells the story of just like, you don't, you don't love because you don't think you've got a problem. Right, And then Jesus just like his, his compassion is so moving. I'm so compelled by the person of Jesus, his beauty, his love, his kindness, his compassion, his courage. Um, so I, Jesus does two things. He has convictions and he has compassion. Mm. And I was just trying to do those two things. I was trying to help people see um, what Jesus taught about human sexuality and his vision of why this is good news and Jesus' vision of discipleship and why it costs us all something. And then try and love people, man. I mean, that's the challenge. So I'm preaching that sermon with, with you know, friends in mind. Yeah. And um, I don't know. It was a very, very heart. It was like an exercise of the heart, man. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's, you know, it's, it's, I, I'm about as welcome in our culture as a, as a white supremacist, man. I mean, people just think that you can't hold to what the church has has basically believed for almost 2000 years and be a person who's thoughtful or kind. Right. Right. And I think I just have to bear that shame a little bit and just try and say, I think this is what Jesus taught. I gave all the reasons why, but I want, I want you to, to turn to Jesus because I believe this rather than turn away from him. So it was hard, man. How was it received? Two questions. How was it received? And do you have a lot of people in your congregation or say on any given Sunday that are LGBTQ or are say theologically affirming of same sex marriage? I mean, or, or do you feel like you're preaching to the choir largely or is no, this is like pretty diverse. Well, so, so how many sermons have you heard on this issue? How I mean, many, how many sermons have you, how many sermons have you heard from the pulpit on Jesus and the trans community? No. The answer is going to be, as far as I can tell, three. There's going to be one from Andrew Wilson in the UK. Okay. <laughs> There's going to be one from John Dixon for the Center for Public Christianity in Australia. Yeah. <laughs> and then the one I gave. 
Like there's just, there's no one talking about it. So here's what I think people appreciated. John, you obviously tried to research this. Thank you for taking the time. You cut out for a second, you there? And um, oh, there you are. There you are. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And the, the last thing I think. Sorry, can you back? Was, can you back up? You cut out, uh, John. Okay, so go back to where you said, where people said, John, thank you for taking the time to to speak on this. Yeah, I think people appreciated like the the level of research I did. Okay. And and I, and I think the fairness that I tried to characterize both sides of the debate on. Okay. Yeah. You know, so like, hey, this is there's a reason that people believe that gender is a tool of oppression it's because gender has been used as a tool of oppression <laughs> yeah. you know so like yeah. that we have to own that and acknowledge that but um so so i think people appreciated like the thoughtfulness they appreciated the tone and um i haven't had any hate mail yet okay um but i've, I've definitely had pushback okay. i mean most but the reason i brought up how many sermons have you heard on this is because people don't know how to think about it period right so people in general want to be kind and compassionate. We have a uh, 150 year narrative in this country of cultural inclusion. And then anything that feels like it's opposing that, right. you know, like your, your visceral instincts, Jonathan Haidt talks about this, like your moral yeah. instincts are just like, I don't want it. You've got to come from There is a default on that. So I think, um, I think people didn't know how to think about it okay. and I gave them something to think about. And I think people are still thinking through it. So I try to be really fair in that talk and put a series of books to read yeah. so you can see both sides of it and you can contrast them together. And, I, yeah. that, you know, I appreciate about that is you didn't list a bunch of like conservative books and then say, okay, now I'm going to, I'm going to give a progressive book. Now I don't agree with everything. Like always, you just said, Hey, here's two books on each side of this aspect you should read. Here's two books on this side of this aspect and, and really trusting and maybe you can do this because you're in, in a very intellectual environment where people will be able to read stuff and, and, and think clearly through it. But uh, I, I really appreciate the way you even said, hey, look, I, I've, I've worked through both sides. Here's where I'm at. Here's why. Uh, but I encourage you to do the same thing. It wasn't a really it, – it was a, a properly authoritative sermon in the manner that sermons should be, but it wasn't – indoctrinating in, in a negative sense. It was very much a pastoral educational moment. So I, Oh, that's, Oh, that's helpful. I mean, I, I literally, I was, I was trying to, in that passage, ask, if someone was to say to me, like, why do you think the old Testament still matters on this issue? Right. Yeah. Well, I'd like to explain to you, like, I, I can see why people would think that it doesn't apply for these reasons. Yeah. But here's why I think that it does apply. And here's all of these reasons. I think these reasons are stronger than these reasons. Good. Yeah. You know, so I mean, you're just trying to walk through the, walk through the Texas like that. So. Did you have anybody that like left the church that you know of over it? Like, oh, I can't, uh, or no? No, honestly. I mean, even though we're just addressing these, these topics head on right now, I think people have a pretty strong sense. Okay. Hey, John is theologically conservative. That comes out. I mean, I, t I taught last summer 21 weeks through the book of Ephesians or something. And then, you know, it was the book of Nehemiah ex expositionally. Right. And then it was the seven churches of the book of revelation for Lent, at which point you've got someone being thrown onto a bed of sickness for sexual immorality and heresy. So it's like, it's not like I'm not right. talking along the way. So most of the folks, uh, this didn't feel like a shock, but it certainly gave them some food for thought, I think. We're going to have to wrap things up soon. Um, but yeah. let, real quick, what, what, where, where is John Tyson going to be in five to 10 years? Or where would you want John Tyson to be? Do you, do you want to uh, 
bury yourself or have somebody else bury you in the church you're at now? Or do you have other, and, and maybe you can't, maybe you have dreams and stuff that you can't talk freely in case somebody at your church is listening to this. But um, yeah, we'd just love to know generally, like what would you love to do in, in your next, you know, 40 years of ministry? <laughs> if God would, like, if God willing, I would be exactly where I am doing exactly what I'm doing with more space for study. Really? Yes. I mean, I want to be here in New York. I love this city. I feel like I have a covenant land oath with the island of Manhattan. Yeah. No, that was a joke. I love it here. I mean, I, I'm thriving. My, kid, my, my kids have been raised here. We're thriving. Wow. Um, I've built a life with some of my closest friends and we genuinely love each other and just want to do it for the long haul. So I want to give people, if possible, the gift of pastoral stability, which is, you know, 20 years from now, if you get up at a certain time in the morning, you're going to find John prayer walking on ninth Avenue with a coffee. In his oh hand. My God. And I want to give people that gift of stability. Now I don't know if the container is always going to look the same, right? but I, I want to be here doing this. I love this city. I love these people. I just want to serve God here. You know, can you be my pastor? <laughs> I will give you a job if you move to New York. Do you want to be a theologian in residence in Manhattan? Yeah, actually. Yeah. Yeah. So I I had Jonathan Merritt on uh, my podcast on this show just yes. last week, and uh, yes. I go. I'm going to tell him what I told you. I have been to virtually every major city in America, most of them at least. I've never been to New York City, and I love and I love pizza. I love pizza. And so right now, Chicago pizza is the best I've had. Now, my New York friends tell me I need to get, get out of Chicago and come to New York. But that, I, that's, that's, Chicago pizza is real pizza. They know what they're doing. Okay, yeah. But it's not as good as New York pizza. <laughs> I knew there was something coming. <laughs> you know, New, York is an, New York is an amazing city. And you should come here. I mean, so I'll give you an example. You'll appreciate this. Not a lot of other folks would. I was researching my neighborhood. I live one street from where Walter Rushenbush pastored and wrote the social really? gospel. Yeah, man, I'm right around wow. there. That church that still has Christ the cornerstone. I still pray there every Saturday night for our church. Wow. Um, that now hosts C.S. Lewis plays inside of it in that church. Wow. So but I'm in a neighborhood that has a very, very rich sense of history. And I right now, but I try and touch the deep history of it and think about where it's headed and, you know, live well in the moment and shape yeah. it in some small way. So. Wow. You should come up for a visit, man. All right, well, f- find an excuse it. for me to come out, and yes, uh, yeah, I'll I'll make the trip. Hey, where can people we'll be- where can people get a hold of you? Well, uh, because you you're very local church minded. Like I figure you have the ability, the voice, the the gifts to build a big kind of national platform, and you have a platform. But I, I think your national platform is smaller than it very well could be because you seem to be so local church minded. I don't know if that's an even accurate description, but I. I want other people to hear you. Where, where can they go hear you and read your stuff? <laughs> Gosh, I mean, on social media, I'm John Tyson, J-O-N-T-Y-S-O-N. Okay. And I basically tweet in Instagram what I'm reading and what I'm doing. Okay. If you want to find our church, you can find our church online at church.nyc. Okay. So it's super simple. You can jump on our podcast. Okay. It's, it's there, but, you know, I've got my head down, man. I mean, I just, I want to... I, you're not going to believe the source of this coming quote, but I heard someone say, home is the prize. Huh. Home is the prize. Influence isn't the prize. Conferences aren't the prize. Home is the prize. Huh. And that was from Hillsong Church. <laughs> and I've always, I've always taken that in my heart, man. Home is the prize. Yeah. 
So like you, you never rise above the privilege yeah. of being a local shepherd in a congregation. That's it, man. That's the stuff. That's awesome. So, I mean, I, I love that in many ways. Um, the things I do outside of the church, I do feel a sense of calling to them. But I want to, you know, I, I feel God give me this word. Now I'm just rambling, but I feel God like pay careful attention to the whole flock of which the Holy Spirit made you want to oversee. Mm. And I was like, I'm going to stand before God and give an account for the souls of the people in this church. So yeah. that's kind of sobering to me. So that is my focus for sure. That's good. Well, I hope people yeah. will check it out. Church of the City podcast, especially. Check out the website, follow you on social media. John, thanks so much for being on Theology in the Raw. Mate, thank you for having me. An honor. Thank you.